And uh, this was, uh, and young people, I want you to hear these testimonies that we share here at our church because that way you know that you're being raised up in an environment where you know God is supernatural, God's real, right? So that you guys are believing God right now. You know, there is no junior Holy Spirit, right? There's not like a big Holy Spirit for the adults and a small Holy Spirit for you guys, right? Do you know that much of the miracles that took place in the Bible were done through youth? So you guys rock on. Okay, now listen. Uh, This just happened last Sunday right here. Uh, Tina Hernandez. Uh, David and Tina, you guys stand up so we can all see you. This is a great testimony. It's David and Tina Hernandez. Okay. And uh, you go ahead and sit down. I uh, just want you to see who it is. Uh, she was diagnosed with spas- uh, spasmodic dysphonia. That's paralysis of the vocal cords. And she came uh, to church last Sunday and people prayed for her down here. We prayed for her out there. And um, it says that she had not been able to speak for about a month. She could not really speak on Sunday. I remember when I just said hi to you guys and I thought maybe you had something caught in your throat. I mean, I could barely hear your voice. And uh, I, I didn't know about this. She could not speak on Sunday. At best, she sounded like a horrible... Oh, I had a horrible frog. Not just a frog in your throat. It was a horrible frog in your throat. There's a difference. She was going to need thousands of dollars in treatment but it would not result in a cure. My understanding of the condition is that at best they could inject her vocal cords to try and paralyze them into a consistent tone enough for speaking after therapy. Is that accurate? Yeah, so they said that there's going to be thousands of dollars, speech therapy, Botox injections, and and there was no hope. I mean, this was it. Yeah, well, well, I know because you're... you're, Yeah, I know, yeah. She's... She's talking to us, by the way. So there's, there's the testimony. I'm reading the testimony. She's talking to us in the middle of church. Amen. And uh, I, I was talking to Tina this morning, and she said that she cannot wait to go back to the doctors. And look, doctors are God's agents. So all we're saying is that, you know, we don't poo-poo doctors or therapists or psychologists or psychiatrists in this church. What we're saying is when we run out of our human resources, there's got to be something or someone beyond uh, our, our human capabilities. And that's what we get excited about at this church is when we come against a stronghold that doesn't seem to be able to break like this medical stronghold, this physical stronghold, where they are saying to her uh, that there is no uh, chance that you'll ever talk normal again. This is just last Sunday. And there's going to be uh, long-term therapy thousands of dollars and so um, Donette uh, uh, a lady in our congregation had a prophetic word last Sunday that Tina needed to sing for her healing to take place now prophetic word the Bible talks about the gift of prophecy and that's when the Holy Spirit there's principles in the Bible but then the Holy Spirit may say something specific spontaneously through one of his people to someone and so Donette was out on the patio after church and the Spirit of the Lord came on her and gave her some Specific information. Now, Jesus, when you see the healings in the Bible, you guys, you know, sometimes Jesus like made a mud ball and shoved it in somebody's eye. Isn't that cool? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he did all sorts of stuff. And uh, he did it because the Holy Spirit told him to do something unique and specific at any given moment. And so here's a gal in our church. The doctors have already given the diagnosis. There is no hope. And somebody in the church has the boldness to say, I think the Holy Spirit just told me to tell you that you need to sing. Now, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That's not rational. The, the girl can't even talk, and she's being told to sing. We asked Tina to sing a song with us. 
but she didn't have a song in mind and said she would rather sing in her car or at home to praise music. She said she felt a vibration around her throat as we prayed. We got a call at 6 p.m. from Matthew that's, that said she had sung in her car and the Lord completely restored her voice. Isn't that great? This is the part of the testimony of Jesus beside you healing her, which is all the ultimate celebration here. I just think this is funny. Uh, I like, I like, we call ourselves around here. We are, we are, um, uh, super, supernaturally natural. In other words, when you hear somebody prophesy in our church, they don't change their words and go, all oh, thus saith the Lord God almighty. And then you talk to them normally and they talk like this. We don't do that. We're just normal. And the supernatural flows through us as we're being ourselves. And so I love in the midst of this, this dynamic invasion of Jesus into your guys's life, David, uh, uh, says he was overjoyed talking on the phone to a less and uh, he said in a joking manner hey thanks a lot now she's yelling at me again <laughs> I hope you guys can get that worked out we did the healing part with Jesus you guys have to do the relational part with Jesus so we want to pray for the sick this morning so I'm gonna ask the band let's just worship just for another another uh, five minutes or so and maybe you have a condition that is hopeless. Or maybe, listen, it's a condition that's not hopeless, but you'd like it to be healed. And maybe you did it to yourself. Hey, Jesus is merciful. So whatever the condition is, whether it's small or great, why don't you make your uh, way down here. The prayer teams come on down. And let's lay hands. The Bible says, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Jesus says, you're my church. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Should be. Should be getting a signal first thing I have to say is really really important who's that idiot who gives the announcements and makes fun of the guitar solos <laughs> I don't know what you're being paid but we're cutting your salary in half <laughs> oh you're a volunteer well, <laughs> something I said earlier about humor in this church it tends to abound all right today we're picking up the uh, Hearing the Voice of God series. And we're, I think we've done most of the teaching on it, described how we hear the voice of God uh, through um, intimacy with Him, the subjective way we hear the voice of God. Do you know what I mean when I say the subjective way that we hear the voice of God? The still, small voice, the thoughts that seem to come uh, unbidden into our minds, uh, dreams, um, visions, mental pictures, uh, Bible verses that just pop up suddenly. Do you understand what I mean by that? That's one side of guidance. That's one side of hearing the voice of the Lord. And I call it subjective because there is no objective way to determine whether or not you are hearing accurately when you have those experiences. I'm not making light of them. I'm just saying there's no objective way until you do the thing that comes to you and find out in retrospect whether it was God or not. You don't know in the moment if this is Him or not. Have you ever had that concern? Something comes to you and you're thinking, I think this is God. I feel like it's God, but I, I just don't know. Do you understand? And by the way, prophecies that people give you, and I do a lot of that ministry, so I'm not depreciating it but prophecies that people give you are in exactly the same boat you don't know if it's a genuine word from the lord until circumstances happen that make it clear okay that was the lord i did hear accurately that was 
a, a prophetic word of the Lord. Do you understand? We don't know until our world changes as a result of what was said or we obey what the Lord said and we get the result that indicates this is clearly, clearly, clearly the Lord. So on the one hand, you've got this subjective experience, which is uh, important. And on the other hand, you have the clear-cut principles and teachings of Scripture. The Bible contains... <laughs> you know, if we obeyed 10% of what was in the Bible, our lives would be dramatically improved. I don't mean if we knew 10% of what was in the Bible. I mean if we actually governed our decisions by even a small portion of the principles of God and implied them in a daily fashion, most of the problems we face we wouldn't be facing. No, honestly. Really. So, we've got this book full of principles for living, and the way you determine the guidance of God through that book and those principles is you read them, you gather them into categories. This is what a successful marriage looks like. This is what successful parenting looks like. This is what successful friendship looks like. This is what successful employer-employee relationships look like. This is what citizenship looks like in the Bible. Do you understand that there's all these subjective headings? By subject, I don't mean subjective by personal experience. I mean you can look subjectively by subject through the Bible and you can find what God says on almost any subject. Knowing those principles and then applying them to your life will lead to a successful life. And by that, I mean you'll minimize the damage. So the church, oddly, falls into two camps. Maybe not so oddly. Maybe it reflects the way we're made. Maybe it reflects our own individual personalities. But the church either seems to be very heavy on the principle-driven life, reasoning your way, through the use of your brain and the principles that are there, looking at the facts in your life and applying the principles, and you get an orderly life. Or another part of the church goes much more strongly on the subjective personal impressions that seem to be coming from the Lord. And this leads to the first, by the way, the principle-driven life most of the time is a very safe life. And it's a smart life, and it's a risk-minimizing life. Are you with me? The other one, where you're willing to do almost anything that pops into your head in the name of, it could be the Lord, therefore I will try it, leads to a very adventurous, exciting, and messy, and usually somewhat destructive life. Because you're not always right in what you're hearing. Are you fixing my car? He loves me. He's my friend. He cares about how I appear in front of people. <laughs> Where was I? All right. So you get the reason side of the equation. If you do it right and you do it according to the book, most of the time things are going to work out and most of the time not much will go wrong. But to be quite honest with you, not much will go right either beyond a baseline of everything's okay. In other words, you're not going to see much of the power of God in that life. The power of God tends to come commensurate with our risks. Do you understand? When we run out of the human ability to accomplish something or we find ourselves in a situation where the best I can do isn't going to do it and all of a sudden in faith we find ourselves relying on the Lord and then He begins to guide us moment by moment and things work out and all of a sudden you see a dynamic of being a Christian you never saw before. You see the literal power of God moving in your life. 
And that's why so many of us really like that subjective side of, of things because it's a really cool thing where you give someone a word, I think you should sing on the way home, and they sing on the way home and they get healed. That's a clear demonstration of the power of God. And that's very, very, very exciting. But just as you can hear something good like that from the Lord, you can hear something idiotic that is not from the Lord. I should leave my wife and take up with my secretary at work because it just feels so good and God is a God of love and I'm full of love for her so it's consistent with his biblical principles and I really feel good about it and I know she feels good about it too. And just to be really honest, my present wife is kind of a drag. And God is a God of us being happy and we're all his children and he really cares more about our happiness than our character. So I'll just go with whatever feels good and this boy really feels good. And that is chaos. And you think I'm making a joke? You think I'm picking an extreme example? We could go through the Christian leaders in the last two years that have done that and crashed major international ministries because their decision-making was driven by their feelings with a religious veneer over top of it to make them feel okay about the bad decision that they just made. Do you understand? So I've been kind of railing against that because we're a spirit-filled church and we believe in the moment-by-moment guidance of the Holy Spirit. We're very, very high on that side of things. And I teach courses about how to hear the voice of God and go out and take those risks. But every time I teach those courses, I wonder, what am I spawning here? What's going to be the result in an individual's life if the next thing that pops into their head they figure is probably God and they just go do it without thinking about it at all? So I realized if we don't have a balance between the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain, between revelation and reason, we are going to crash on one side of the road or the other. We're either going to go into the ditch of everything safe, but there's not much power, and it gets to be kind of boring, or we go off the road in the other direction where it's hair raising, hair on fire doing 100 miles an hour, but there's no brakes on the car and we're not sure of the steering. So both sides have these problems. So I was thinking to myself, It's got to be the balance between revelation and reason that leads to the successful Christian life. Okay, it is to a point. I thought I had it down, and that's what I was preaching. And the last time I talked about this, I talked about the need for the balance between revelation and reason. If we can just get that balance right, we will have a much more powerful, successful Christian life. And it's true, but it's not complete. And here's what struck me the other day. We can always... When we're using reason and biblical principles, like the guy who left his wife for another woman, we can always find a reason that suits our reason in the Bible for doing something really wrong. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, you talk to friends and they've just come up with the most boneheaded biblical reasoning to justify something they really wanted all along. And then I realized this. Half the church says you can't trust their feelings because feelings got distorted at the fall. Your emotions fell at the fall. Well, guess what? So did your reasoning. So did your reasoning. The Bible says there's doctrines that you believe taught by demons. The church is riddled with doctrines taught by demons where very smart guys sit down and rationalize that theology to to say this is what the Bible says, but it isn't what the Bible says at all, and they they rely on their reasoning. There's bad exegesis of the Bible all over the church. So reasoning alone is not going to get you clear-cut guidance from God. Guys, this should scare you a little. 
It really should. I always thought reason was the anchor I could hold on to to keep track of my subjective, whacked-out experiences. But I found myself reasoning all sorts of things. The Lord spoke to me the other day and said I needed a 7,000-square-foot house. (laughs) No, people, because the gift of hospitality is huge. God wants hospitality. Think of the groups I could have and the people I could welcome and they could all come and watch football, all of you, because it would be that big. On a Sunday afternoon, we could watch the Chargers lose again for another season. Wouldn't that be exciting? And then I realized God wants me to have a 7,000 square foot house. I don't have the money. That doesn't matter in America. You don't have to have the money. You don't. God bless America. You can just go out and get a goofy mortgage, a magic mortgage, where you pay almost nothing for five years and then you pay with your firstborn child. It's awesome, this country. I love it. And we get a bailout for this. So so I think it's God's will, based on me now being in America, needing a 7,000 square foot house but not having the money, that I just go out and sign the note anyway. So I get the 7,000 square foot house and all of a sudden the gift of hospitality is not important anymore. The gift of having a retreat center for me to retreat in is really, really important. I'm going to start a monastic order of people who stay home and watch TV. I'll throw in a little God channel once in a while. Come on. You get what I'm saying, do you see? Your reason, people, is as fallen as your emotions. So then, I mean, this threw me, literally, this week looking at this, what am I going to say to these people? I thought the answer was good reason matching mature emotions and that will lead to a successful Christian life. But I'll tell you what, even that is not enough. There's something else that has to happen to get to the stage where we can both trust our reasoning through the Bible and our emotional experiences and the subjective hearing of God's voice. There's something deeper that needs to happen to see to it that our guidance is safe. Does anybody in this room want to take a shot? You'll get your tithe back if you nail it. Oh, Marcia! Candy! Okay, no one's getting their tithe back because she put the answer up. Look, the only way you're going to be safe hearing the voice of God and even reasoning through Scripture is before you do that, you make up your mind you are going to obey whatever He says and that your personal preferences are not more important than His will. Are you with me? You can't hear, your, your, your hearing is distorted if your heart is not committed. You work out the issue of your heart first and your ears will all of a sudden pop open and you'll hear all sorts of things you weren't hearing before. So the issue is not in our brains. The issue is in our wills. The word is consecration. Have you consecrated your life to his purposes, to the point where your personal desires, your personal dreams, and even your prophetic words that you've been leaning on are not more important to you than your relationship with him and what he wants for your life. Have you come to that place? Have you come to that place? And if you haven't, be very careful as you reason your way through Scripture and as you obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Here's a verse that we rely on that just irks me. Hear it over and over again. 
Let's just go to the next slide. I'm, I'm one step behind here. The question is not, what is God's will for my life? The question we usually ask is, what is God's will for my life? That is the wrong question. The question is, what is God's will? Do you understand? If you are asking, see, this, you're halfway consecrated if you're saying, what is God's will for my life? Well, that's good, but that's not all the way. All the way is what's God's will. And once you figure out what God's will is, what his kingdom looks like, what character he values, the kind of people he wants to go after and love that you haven't been loving, the, the, the kind of lifestyle that he calls his people to, once you know his will, you don't have to ask, what's your will for my life? You fit into his life. You adjust your preferences and your dreams to his dreams and his will. God, what's your will? And guys, that's not that hard to find out. When I was first uh, trying to discover my spiritual gifts and I went to my mentor and I said, how do I know what my spiritual gifts are? He said, find somebody to love. I said, what do you mean? He said, whenever you make love the focus... Self-sacrificing love. You put yourself out for other people. You will very quickly discover what works for them, what serves them, what makes their life better. Those are your spiritual gifts. Isn't that a simple principle? Put that first and you'll discover what you're made for. But oh no, we'd rather go to seminars than what we're made for and then feel good about what we're made for and never go out and do it. I'm not kidding you. We had a spiritual gifts discovery thing up in Canada when my church was large and we did it with our, a number of churches. There was over 500 people that attended. Listen to me. This is really important. Between the churches that cooperated, there were over 500 people that took the course on discovering your spiritual gifts, but at the end of the course, every one of them was interviewed, and we got a gifts inventory from them of what they were able to do, and then we sent out and said, here are the needs in the church, and your church, your local church and our church, here's the needs that correspond with your spiritual gifts. Gifts. How many people out of 545 attendees at the conference, how many sent those things back and said, I'm prepared to serve in the area of my spiritual gifts? 18. Out of 545 attendees, 18. You don't need more knowledge. Do you understand? You don't need to know more about who you really are. Learn less about who you really are and more about who God is. Get on His page and you will discover who you really are. I know this is a sobering message and it just all of a sudden got not fun. Just all of a sudden got creepy. But guys, this is the truth. This is the truth. Do you want to find God's will for your life? Find God's will. Find somebody to love. And the Spirit will guide you. Here's a verse that uh, is misused Every time I hear this, I have not heard this verse properly exegeted by anyone I've ever heard say it. And I've heard it wrong every single time I've heard it. Psalm 37, 4 and 5, Take delight in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, remember? And He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. They all, everyone quotes this. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And here's how they work it. As long as I have good feelings about the Lord, delight. As long as I really like Him a lot. As long as I worship Him passionately and throw myself into it. He's got to give me whatever my heart deeply desires. Have you ever heard that? 
I hear it every single time this verse gets quoted. It's the proof text for getting what you want as long as you're cuddly towards God. As long as you've got warm feelings in your heart, he has got to come across with the things I really want. You laugh. I've heard some of you say it. It gets, this verse gets thrown around more than any other verse in the Old Testament on account of this reason. It's my justification for what I want for my life and I've got good sentiment towards God, sentimentality towards God. I feel good about God, so therefore I'm delighting in Him, so therefore He's got to come across. Here's what the verse actually means. The word delight, delight yourself in the Lord. It comes from the Hebrew word uh, which means be soft or pliable. It's a Hebrew word that's used for leather. When you cure leather and you take it and it's all crusty and hard, you begin working oil into the leather off the palms of your hands. And you begin kneading and twisting and folding and rubbing that leather until after enough rubbing and enough stretching and enough just like this with the leather and touching it and working it and forming it, it becomes so soft you can make anything you want out of it. Any lights coming on? It means to be soft or pliable. It translates, here's how it translates from the Old Testament to the various places that it's used. Easily yield to pressure. Be sensitive and gentle. It also means to luxuriate in and take your joy in, but that's the minor meaning after the other two. To delight in the Lord means to be pliable and easy to lead. Now you see? Be pliable, be easy to lead, commit your way unto the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But that's a trick, you see. There's a nasty little trick in that verse. If you've come to the point where you're pliable and soft and easy and lead, you know what's happened? You've just given up your desires. Yeah. When when he's held you in his hands and he's kneaded you and he's rubbed his oil into you and he's broken the surface of the leather and he's cracked you and he's bent and folded and worked and softened you and you have cooperated with this process every step of the way. In fact, that's all you ever really wanted was to be that way in his hands. And as he does that, he works a transformation in you. And all of a sudden, your desires are not the thing that's most important to you anymore. Now his desires are the most important thing. And there's been a real a bait and switch. He's bait and switched. You came in with your desires, you got close to him, and you got touched and needed, and you became soft and pliable in his hands, and you weren't thinking about it, but at the end of that process, when you look inside of your heart, you've got different desires. Now, what's neat is you hold them just as strongly and as deeply. You care about them as much as you cared about your selfish, passionate desires, but they're different now. You've been transformed. But it started with an attitude that says, I am going to be soft and manipulable and pliable, and I'm going to be easily led. That's my goal. You make that your goal, eventually you can trust the desires of your heart because they've been transformed. James 1, 5 and 6 says exactly, listen to this. This is so cool. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God. But ask in faith, never doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, this is important, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, we repeat it. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, if you don't know what to do next, if you're coming to God for guidance and you're just not sure, you should ask God. Okay, that's obvious. But you've got to ask in faith, never doubting. Now, if you just go that far, what you assume is this. I don't know what to do. I'm really at a crossroads. This is really rough. Okay, now, if I can stir up my faith, and if I can get to the point where, as I sit down to pray, and I ask God, what do you want? What are you saying to me? What's your will? If I can just be dead certain that what I'm about to hear is him, and not doubt that I'm going to him, going to, going to hear him, not doubt that, and I can have that level of faith, if I come with that kind of faith to ask him, then he's going to tell me, and whatever he tells me I can count on, that's him, and that's the right thing to do. Have you ever thought of that verse that way? Understood faith in that verse that way? That's not what the verse says. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for the doubter being double-minded and unstable in every way must not expect to receive any guidance from the Lord. Now, those two things, those two concepts added to the verse, the concept of being double-minded and unstable in every way, really focus us on what this verse actually means. Here's the, the meaning in the Greek for a doubter. A doubter is one who is double-minded and unstable in every way. The verse is saying when you're doubting, you are double-minded and unstable in every way. What's it mean biblically to be double-minded? What that verse in the Greek means, double-minded, means literally this, one who has divided loyalties. It's not a matter of thinking two things at the same time. It's a matter of motivation. It's one who has two loyalties. Do you see how the picture is clarifying? If you've got two loyalties, one is to the kingdom of God and one is to the kingdom of Mark, do you understand? Don't expect to hear clearly from the Lord. That's to be double-minded. That's to have mixed motives. Secondly, unstable. He's unstable in all he does. What does unstable mean? This is good. We think unstable means somebody who is balancing on an exercise ball. And it's kind of unstable. That's not what it means. This is what the Greek means. It means one who is unable to be controlled by something or someone. Being unstable, biblically, does not mean you have a flighty personality or mercurial. Your emotions are up and down and all over the map. It means you have a difficulty in being controlled by anything. It's you who's in control. You are making the decisions. Do you see how this becomes a matter of the will? Both verses, it's a matter of the will. Divided heart, unstable. The verse could be translated exactly this. Get ready. This is a good, fair, contemporary translation of this verse. Don't expect to receive guidance. In fact, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord when you come to him with divided loyalties between his will and yours. And don't expect to receive from him when you choose to be out of his control. When you choose not to be pliable and easily led, don't expect to hear guidance. When you choose, because of your divided loyalties, to have one foot in your life and one foot in his life, and you're expecting to hear guidance, you're not going to get it. So you can't trust your reason and you can't trust your subjective revelations. Is this sobering, guys? I mean, it really should be. It's very sobering. 
James makes his meaning even more clear when he says in James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasure. You're not hearing because you're not asking and you're not asking because when you ask, you've got mixed motives and it's really all about you. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6.33. You strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will come to you. Everything else, not everything else in the world and you're going to be the Bill Gates of Christendom. Everything else that you need for a successful Christian life in relationship with him, he'll bring to you. And that's really all you need. Right? Okay, this was all like really depressing. So let's just lighten it a hair. It's really tempting to think at this point that the only way you're going to hear God clearly is if you're obedient perfectly and you have absolutely no preferences or desires. You've got to be perfect in your motivations to get his guidance. It's not true. I, I'm not sure. This is a bit cynical about my own life, but... I don't know if I've ever had a pure moment. All of my decisions have mixed motives. There's always self in there somewhere scrambling for a percentage of the, of the action. I'm always negotiating somehow for my own self. Do you understand? And I'd like you to be honest, most of the time so are you. I've never, I, I, maybe once or twice in my life I've had 100% pure motive for God. Most of the time, yeah, I'm really lucky if it's 80%. I figure I'm Mother Teresa if I'm hitting 80%, 85%. But here's the truth, guys. Thank God for God. He's okay with 51%. He can work with 51%. Actually, to be honest, he's worked with a lot less than that in me. I've been down around the 20%, but reluctantly somehow said yes and went on the basis of the 20% and did what he said, and all sorts of wonderful stuff happened. But we've got to realize this. Proportionally, there is a relationship between our wholeheartedness for him and our wholeheartedness of him. There's a direct relationship. The more wholehearted you are for him, the more clearly you will hear him and the more revelation you will get, both from reason and from your subjective hearing of him. So... When we're making a decision, now this really is important. When you've got a major decision to make, don't think about the decision. Think about your heart. It's really not between A or B. The first stage of finding out whether it's A or B is not looking at A or B. It's looking at me. Where is my heart? How divided are my loyalties? Am I consecrated? Could I bear to hear him say the one I don't want? Could I even be comfortable with him saying the one I don't want? I want this one so bad that no matter what he says, I'm going to bend, fold, spindle, and mutilate his word into this one. If you know that's what's going in inside of you, wait to ask. Don't ask yet. Deal with this inside. What's wrong with my heart, Lord? Why am I divided with you? What have you ever done to let me down that I would be divided with you? How have you ever been a disappointment to me that I would let you, I would not trust you with this? God, what's going on in my heart? 
that I've got such divided motives. Why am I always playing it safe? Why am I always setting up situations that I can't lose in? Why don't I ever take risks? Why am I so driven by my emotions? What are the needs underneath my emotions that are clamoring for my attention, that they're so important to me? Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuit order, all these young men came to him. How do you found a religious order? You get really close to God, severely touched by his Holy Spirit. People start to notice and they want to be like you. So they started, young men started coming to him and saying, can we hang out with you? Whatever you're doing, we'd like to be like you. So he had a problem. He had all these young men that were coming to him. And he was, by the way, he was not endorsed by the church when this took place. He was a rabid, outside-the-establishment guy who was going about doing kingdom stuff by himself. And then a trickle of guys, young men, started coming to him and wanting to be part of it. Now, he had a problem. He's got all these young guys coming to be a part. And they, they're messed up. I mean, they're, all me- they're from all sorts of whacked-out backgrounds. And, and, and half of them hardly know God at all. And he has to train them. So he comes up with his... Religious exercises. 30 days of religious exercises that he trains these young men with. And one of the first things they have to encounter is, how do you purify your heart to hear the voice of God? How do you get rid of what he called inordinate attachments? The things that our soul and our emotions long for, that are so important to us that we can't hear God clearly on anything that touches that issue. He said, what you've got to do to hear God clearly when your emotions and desires are involved and you have inordinate attachments, what you've got to do is come to the place of what he described as holy indifference. H-O-L-Y indifference. A godly indifference to where you are not preferring your choice over the opposite. And you can spend days and weeks just struggling, not waiting to hear what the answer is, getting your heart pure so you can ask the question. Do you understand? Deal with the inordinate attachments before you come to ask his will. Now, it sounds easy. It's not. It's brutal. The few times I've tried it, it just about killed me. You know why? Because it feels like a death. It feels like a death inside. It feels like your dreams are dying, and they are. And you're killing them. And you're letting them die. In fact, you're encouraging their death. Because you want to come to a neutral place where you're not clamoring to hold on to anything. And you can hear him purely. So you've got to let them die. You know, what the fact, you know what the fact is? The fact is many of those dreams you're holding on to, you would not be safe in the fullness of them when you hold them that selfishly. Many things in this Christian life he has to take away from us before he gives it back. Because when he gives it back, we're not desperate to have it like we were before. We've already learned to let go of it. Do you understand? Some of your biggest enemies are your biggest dreams. Because they've come between you and hearing the voice of God. It's true. Inordinate attachments, holy indifference. Sometimes it can take weeks to come to the place where you finally sort of think you're 50-50 on it. Now you're ready to ask. Now, God, what do you want? He even has an exercise, John. This is really cool. He taught his young men to do this. He said, you've got two choices. 
one looks like this and one looks like this, and your heart really desires this one over here, in your imagination, for the next couple of weeks of prayer, live on this side. Imagine this never comes true and live over here and get comfortable over here. Then when you've done that, live over here for a week or two and see if you can hold them both equally. When you can hold them both equally, you're ready to ask God, what should I do? You get it? Do you get it? Why does he want this? Why, is, why does it matter that we have to come to this place of holy indifference? Why should we give up our dreams and shelve them in order to come to the place where we don't care about them when they were promises of God anyway? You see the logic of that? Doesn't seem intuitive, does it? Here's the reason. This happened to me a number of years ago. Everything, I had all these dreams for ministry, the kind of church we were going to build, my place in it, my significance in... When you leave everything you have, when, when I left everything I had to be a pastor, I burnt all the bridges and I couldn't go back. It was my identity. It was everything that mattered to me. Ministry was everything that mattered to me in those days. And then it all started to crumble. It all started to fall apart. My reputation, you've, you, many of you heard the story, my reputation got trashed, my wife left, the denomination thought I was damaged goods, the church didn't have the money to continue, I was going to have to pick up the debts. I mean, it was disaster. It was just disaster. And I went into a depression. And I started asking God, what should I do? And this is what he spoke to me. He said, one question, you need to come to peace with one question. And I said, what? And he said, if from this point on, you never did another ministry thing, you never taught another sermon, you never led worship again, you never counseled anyone, you never gave a prophetic word, you have nothing to do with my kingdom. It's just going to be you in your backyard for the rest of your life. And I was only 40 when this took place. So that was a long time ago. Seems like a long time ago. Just, and he said to me, it's just you and me puttering around the yard for the rest of your life. Can you imagine that? And I said, yes. And he said, here's the question. If that happens, am I enough for you? Come on, think about it. If the dreams never happen, if the prophetic words never come true, if the husband you're waiting for doesn't materialize, if the breakthrough at work doesn't happen, if the career doesn't take off, if all these dreams and things you believe God has promised you never come true, and he looks at you and he says, even then, am I enough for you? What are you going to answer? And can you answer honestly? Do you understand? Even the dreams and desires can come between us and him. Even when they're from him, they can come between us and him. That's the question he's asking you guys. In every circumstance of your life, if it never broke through, am I enough for you? Someday you're going to stand before him in heaven. And here's how your rewards will be determined. Are you ready? You're ushered into a little room. You're the only person in the room. It's a strange little room. When you're in it, you can only tell the truth. Do you understand? You can only tell the truth. 
no matter what comes out of your mouth, it will be the truth from your heart. And you're standing in that little room, and Jesus walks in, and he walks up to you, and he looks in your eyes, and he says, Kathy, look at me. And you look at him, and he says, am I everything you've ever wanted? And that's going to determine your reward. If he asked you that today, if he was here in this room, and he stood in front of you, and he said, look at me. Am I everything you've ever wanted? What would you say? Could you say it? You say yes. Often the thing that stands between us and saying yes are the things we cling to which he has already promised us. But they're not him. They're stuff. We have to get over the stuff. You with me? Let's close our eyes. Jesus, I believe that you are here. And I believe you are asking that question to each one of us. Am I everything you've ever wanted? And I believe, Lord, I have to be honest, most of the time the answer is no. But I want, I want to be able to say that. With all of my heart, I want to be able to say that. And I want to come to the point, I would hope, someday before I die, that I can say, yes, you're everything I've ever wanted. Now I ask you, Holy Spirit, in this moment, bring to our minds those things which stand between us and you and answering the question, yes, you are everything. You are everything I've ever wanted. Just you. Just you. What is standing between each one of us and answering that question, yes? What do we have to let go of, Lord? What are the inordinate attachments, the unfulfilled desires and dreams words and promises. Please show us, Holy Spirit, right now. For each one of us, please show us what it is that we can let go of. Just keep your eyes closed. If, if the Lord has shown you what that is in your life, just put your hand up. If he's shown you something, this is what it is for you. Put your hand up. Lord, reveal it. Reveal it, Lord. Holy Spirit, reveal it. What is it? What stands in the way? What unfulfilled thing are we clinging to? Now, Lord, what do you want to say about that? Holy Spirit, in this moment, what do you want to speak? What do you want to say to each one of us?